Even if you follow stories of missing people, it's highly likely you haven't heard of Nahida Khatib, who went missing from her Wisconsin home on October 1st, 1976. Her story wasn't widely covered even back then, and this is the kind of story that if we just went by those news reports, we'd get a lot wrong. When Nahida didn't answer her brother-in-law's calls all day, he entered her house to find his two-year-old daughter in her playpen, a cup of coffee on the counter, and meat taken out for dinner. Everything looked normal, except, of course, Nahida wasn't there. We thought there had to be more to her story, so we requested her file to find out. And this is her story. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to She Goes by Jane. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This week, we will be joined by award-winning actress and activist, Kathy Najimy. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. What's your favorite Kathy Najimy movie? I guess I'd have to say Hocus Pocus right now because we are in Halloween season, and that's where my mind is going right to. You know, my kid had not even seen Hocus Pocus, but she knows Kathy Najimy from The Descendants. So, like, as soon as I said her. She was like, oh, I know who she is. And I was like, hocus pocus, of course. And she was like, no, no. <laughs> I used to love her on Veronica's Closet also. That was a really funny show. Oh, yeah. My favorite is like younger Veronica's Closet, all of those. You know, one one great thing about doing this is that we get to invite so many other voices onto this show. And I just wanted to say like, I am a Kathy and Jimmy fan for a long time. And, you know, shout out to her. I played my daughter this brief interview that Kathy and Jimmy did back in the 90s when Hocus Pocus came out. It was Kathy saying that she like really hesitated to take on the Hocus Pocus role because she was worried about portraying witches in a bad light and that there are like legit like Wiccans and witches in the world and she didn't want to like contribute to like harm against them. I played that for my daughter and she just like lit up. <laughs> and Like a few weeks later, she came to me and was like, hey, like, I just wanted to tell you that I'm, like, I'm a, I'm Wiccan. And so, like, you know, shout out to Kathy for this interview across space and time had, like, made this, like, preteen girl in upstate New York feel, like, safe enough and comfortable enough to, like, talk about her, her beliefs. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't it? It is. I, I've actually listened to that clip as well, and it was really, really nicely said. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Kathy. And I could talk about Kathy all day, and that's partially because I just love her so much, and also because um, the story that we're about to talk about today, Nahida's story, actually makes me a little bit nervous to talk about. Should I be scared? I don't know. Well, like, just just you saying you're nervous is making me scared. So should we not be talking about this? Should we just skip right to the poem that Kathy's going to read? <laughs> let's Let's not do the podcast today. <laughs> Um, we have to. This is an important story, but like as soon as I got this police file, I started digging into it and uh, like I was up all night reading it. And then like partway through, I messaged your husband who like is in charge of managing all of those kinds of things. And I was like, I'm scared. Yeah. So he said that then. And I'm like, really? Because you have not gotten scared about any of these things we're talking about. And then I've had time to like dwell on that. Like, why? Why is she scared? What is she about to tell me? What is going to happen? Right. So this story starts off in one direction and then we're going to take a turn. And I really want to get into her story because this is complicated. It's long. There are a lot of people in it. Now, one of the things that we do is that we do not say perpetrator names or potential perpetrator names just to call attention to the person that we're talking about, the woman who is missing. In this case of couple of people in the police report specifically asked for their names to be protected by the police. So we are also not naming them. Okay. I'm glad we're not naming people at this point. Right. Like, would that, would it be dangerous to say some of these names? I'm... Not the requested ones, but the other ones? So some of the, some of these perpetrators are still alive. I believe a lot of people in this story have passed away, but I think maintaining people's anonymity if they've asked for it is important. Right. Of course that part is, but I just don't want anyone killy coming after me. Right. Or you. Or me. 
<laughs> okay, so let's get into Nahida's story. On September 30th, 1976, a woman named Amal and her husband Sharif spend their Thursday evening with Amal's sister, who is Nahida, at Nahida's home in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, which is part of the Milwaukee region. At about 9 p.m., Amal and Sharif, they decide to head home, but they leave their youngest daughter there so that she can spend the night with Nahida and Nahida's 10-year-old son, Eddie. Nahida is going to babysit her through the night into the next day. The next day, Sharif calls his sister-in-law, Nahida. He calls her at 10 a.m. No one answers. He gets busy with his day, but he tries her again at 5. Still no answer. And he calls at 7 p.m. Again, no one answers. So where's his daughter and Eddie at this point? Well, so he knows that he has left his daughter in Nahida's care. You know, it's a regular, it's like October. It's a school day. Eddie was supposed to be at school, but after, you know, 5 p.m., Eddie should have been home. So finally around 8 p.m. or so, he goes over to see what's going on. And he gets there around 8.30 or so. When he gets there, it's already dark, but he finds his nephew, Eddie, Nahida's son, playing outside on his own. And when Sharif asks him about his mom, Eddie says he doesn't know and that he's been playing outside since he got home from school at 4.45. And where's his daughter? So he still doesn't know. So Nahida seems to not be there. Eddie's outside on his own. This is already getting scary. Yes. So Sharif, he checks the doors. They're locked. And to get in, he has to lift Eddie in through the bathroom window and get Eddie to go inside and unlock the doors. And once they're inside, Sharif does find his daughter. She is alive and well, but she is in a playpen. On the dining table is Nahida's purse. On the kitchen counter is a full cup of coffee that's gone cold. There's some meat that's been taken out to thaw. On the stove is a kettle of corn that's like not started, but it's set up there. And Nahida isn't in the house. Is Nahida married? She is. She is living in the house alone with Eddie, though, because she has separated from her husband. Okay. So there's no other adults around. Right. So this isn't looking good because there's no mom that would just wander off away from two kids like this in the middle of the day, especially if she's just made herself some coffee and she's getting ready to make dinner. This is not looking great. Right. It's not. And like, you know, she's taking care of a two-year-old. You would not leave a two-year-old unattended for what seems to be like most of the day because she hasn't answered the phone, the coffee's cold, like no dinner has been cooked, etc. The only thing that seems amiss is that the contents of a drawer, and this sounds like the junk drawer that we all have, has been dumped out in the sink and there's like electrical tape in there, some medical tape, some rope. The only thing that seems to be missing that should have been in the drawer, according to Sharif, is a small hammer. I don't even know what's in my own junk drawer. It's impressive that he knew that that was missing. Yeah, actually, it this is fascinating to me. Like, I was like, could you detail what's in my own house? Like, I, maybe I just have too much stuff. Everything seems... Scary. Scary, right? But Nahida's nowhere to be found. So Sharif calls the police and they come immediately. They do a search of the house and the yard, but still there's no sign of her or indication of where she might have gone. By late that night, police go and talk to Nahida's brother-in-law, so her husband's brother. And he's at this place called Fitness World with a friend named Chuck. And while they're trying to get information from him, in walks Nahida's husband. Okay, is this a place that he would typically go? Yeah, it sounds like they were at this Fitness World quite often. Okay, and does he know where she is? The husband says that he doesn't have any information about Nahida, and he last saw her on Wednesday, and he doesn't know who her friends are, and he can't give them any contact information, and he really refuses to say much else about this situation. And so this is one of the cases in which we are not going to use this man's name. We're just going to refer to him as her husband, and you're going to see why shortly I'm highly suspicious of him. Okay, but is he one of the ones we're, we should be scared of well, in real life? Like right now talking about this? He's dead. Okay, good. No. I mean, sorry. Not good, but good if he did it. But not good. But not good. <laughs> but good if he did it. <laughs> I don't know. 
to really understand what's going on here between them, we have to go way back in time. So Nahida was born on January 7th, 1946 in Tripoli, Lebanon. We actually don't have much information about her early life, but what we do know was that when she was about 17, she married this man who was 33. Wow. That's an age difference. Quite. So he's like almost twice her age when they get married. He was from Jordan, but he had been living in the United States for a few years. And he'd settled in the Milwaukee area because there's like a growing population of Middle Eastern immigrants there. And that's also where his immigration sponsor, Gene, lived. And he'd been working with Gene in television and electronic sales for most of that time up until the year before he married Nahida, when Jean had let him go suddenly. He fired him? He fired him. Jean suspected that he was stealing money and televisions from the store. Okay, so he had a reason. Right. Most of the people who interact with Nahida's husband don't have a really great opinion of him, Jean included. Okay, so most of these people already... Well, I mean, she did leave him, so obviously she didn't really have a great opinion of him at this point either. Right, for good reason. <laughs> for good reason. When they get married, they also settle in Milwaukee first. And in 1965, Nahida has her child, Eddie. It seems like their marriage is not a happy one through its entirety. One of the early signs is that even though Nahida has family in the area, I'm not sure when they arrived, but she has her sister, Amal, and her brother-in-law, Sharif. She also has her husband's family. She is otherwise socially isolated because her husband limits her contact with friends. Okay, so she can only socialize with her family at this point, or his family. Right, it seems very much so. On top of that, Nahida is unable to get pregnant again. She tries. She has as many as 14 miscarriages. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, during the course of their marriage. Now, I don't know why specifically she was in the hospital in 1968. I would hesitate or I wouldn't hesitate to say that has something to do with miscarriages and pregnancy, but that's where she meets a woman who becomes one of the key figures in her life. In the police files I looked through, this woman is clearly scared of Nahida's husband, and even though he's no longer alive and she isn't either, I am going to call her F out of her wishes that her name not be used. Okay. Now, F is... 30 years older than Nahida, which is likely why F describes their relationship as like mother and daughter. Because Nahida's husband is so controlling, F and Nahida have to meet secretly in order to maintain their friendship. Oh, wow. That's, that's awful. Right. This whole, this poor woman. Yeah. So you can start to see. She's isolated and she's having all these miscarriages and does not have a very supportive home life, it sounds. Exactly. And F knows things about their marriage. She knows that he has beaten Nahida in the past and at one point has knocked out some of her teeth that needed to be replaced. This is an incident that's confirmed by Nahida's sister, Amal. And so when he tells Nahida that he wishes that F would die, that doesn't really seem like a passive threat to her. Wow. So he was actually threatening her life or just stating that he wished something would happen to her well i mean he uses threats quite a lot he also threatened nahida and f says that he frequently told her that he wanted to get rid of her okay so he's he's a scary character right and whether or not they're real threats or not f is definitely afraid of him and so is nahida this marriage seems pretty brutal to me, which is why it's not surprising that Nahida escapes this marriage on March 2nd, 1974. There's a police file that I don't have access to for this incident, but I believe it ends up being her husband who reports her missing. What has actually happened is that she is staying with a friend named Carol, and Nahida's husband will later say that she ran away after they had an argument about Nahida leaving the Islamic religion and becoming a Jehovah Witness. Is that something she actually ever did? Well, there is maybe a little truth to this. So Carol is the woman that she's taking refuge with, and they met at a grocery store and struck up a conversation that kind of blossomed into a friendship. Carol is a Jehovah Witness, and Nahida had 
been attending Jehovah Witness meetings. But Carol says that the real reason that Nahida shows up at their house is because Nahida's husband had once again beaten her and she needed a safe place to go. So her choice of religion is really not relevant to anything other than it's just fueling his anger. Right. Like he's using that as an excuse to continue to physically abuse her. Exactly. Nahida ends up going back to him about two weeks later. And in June, just three months later, she's hospitalized and gives birth to a baby that passes away. Poor woman. Right. So the years leading up to her disappearance are very full of conflict and sadness, I think. A lot of loss going on. Mm -hmm. Now, at some point after this leaving and going back and losing her baby, Nahida and her husband separate and they start the process of a divorce. The husband is court ordered to leave the house. In, and in 1976, we know that Nahida is staying there with her son. And her husband's not happy about this because he believes that he should have both the house and the son. Okay, so the, the home she disappeared from was their family home. Yes. And he's been ordered to leave it prior to the divorce. In addition, part of this is that the husband is not allowed to take their son out of the country or even to another state. And this is largely because he'd been traveling a lot. He'd been going to Kuwait and particularly traveling a lot to Arizona, where it seems like he might have been setting up another residence or business. Right. I mean, that makes sense. It would be so easy for him to kidnap his son at that point. Yeah. And that, that seemed to be a concern of the judge as well. So things are pretty tense between them. And Nahida starts making some moves in April. She opens up a bank account and puts $200 in it. That's not her only account. So I get the impression that she was maybe like spreading her very minimal assets around. She also opens up a safe deposit box with just her and her mother's name on it. And she specifically asks them if her husband can access this safe deposit box without her permission. And they're reassured that without his name on there, he can't do that. So she's taking all the right like precautions at this point. Yeah, it seems that she is preparing. In June, she asks for a leave of absence from her job. She works at Marshall Fields in their kitchen on the grill line. And this is a job that her husband made her have so that she could be the one to pay for the family's groceries. This time in June is the last time that her co-workers see her, including one who had become kind of a closer friend who she was also meeting in secret. And when police talk to them later, they universally say that she was an excellent worker and usually really happy and pleasant to be around. But her demeanor changed around May when she became more quiet and reserved and like something was weighing on her. But she never said anything about what was happening? No. I mean, I think it's part of this like social isolation, like, you know, work friends versus close friends. Around September, according to her friend F., Nahida's husband threatens Nahida, though specifically how, I'm not sure. At some point around this time, Nahida confides in F that her husband has offered her $2,000 for a free divorce, meaning that he would get custody of their son. She was like, no, no. He raised that amount to $10,000, which she also refused. Good. At some point, he also offers for her to go with him and live with him in Arizona when he remarries so that she can still see her son. When he remarries, is he already engaged to somebody? Um, it not, it's not in the records, and I can't confirm, but it just really seems like he was already planning, kind of moving on pretty quickly. Well, he's bored with no one to control right now. Right. And Nahida's definitely scared. She tells F that she has changed all the locks of their house. It always surprises me when we're talking about these stories, how like strong and smart these women are and they're doing everything they can to protect themselves, but things can still happen. Exactly. I mean, I just, I think it really emphasizes how how sometimes we're, we're powerless in the face of a lot of this, right? Right. We can do whatever we're told is the right thing to do and prepare in all the ways that we've been taught should help us and and still things happen. Mm -hmm. So this leads us up to the days before her disappearance. On Wednesday, now remember, this is the last time her husband claims to have seen her. Her husband comes over to the house. He's there to pick up their son, Eddie, to take him out to dinner, but Nahida and her husband start to argue. 
According to Amal, her sister, the argument is because he wants to come home and he says he'll give her $10,000 to stop the divorce. Does he really think this is going to work? Apparently, like he he's trying all these different things. And it's interesting to me, it's like in one sense, like offering $10,000 for the divorce and now it's $10,000 to stop the divorce. Right. Like, and who would stop a divorce for money if that's what you're, if it, if, if this guy is like beating you. Right. I mean, somebody might, and I'm not judging that, but I'm, I'm just saying like, it's an unlikely thing. Yeah. Nahida's really upset by this exchange, and she later tells her neighbor that she was done listening to him, and so she slammed the door in his face. Okay, and how many days was this before the disappearance? So she goes missing on a Friday. This is Wednesday. So just a couple days before. Yes. The husband leaves. He takes Eddie with them, and they go and eat some steaks at the Sheridan on Mayfair, and then the husband drops Eddie off back at home. Thursday is the night that Amal and Sharif come over and leave their daughter with Nahida. That night, Eddie sleeps in his mom's room, and the next morning, Nahida gets up first, and then Eddie gets up around 7 a.m. He decides to skip breakfast because he's not hungry, and then heads to school at around 7.30. When he leaves, Nahida is still in morning mode. She's dressed in her green house dress, she's got her slippers on, which makes sense because according to Eddie, she's not planning on going anywhere that day. Later, Amal and Nahida's sister will say that those pieces of clothing, along with a blue robe, are the only things missing from Nahida's closet. So whatever happened to her probably happened to her in, that, in the morning. It's seeming pretty likely. We've got the clothing, we've got the coffee cup, we've got like dinner prep happening but not started, those kinds of things. And her brother-in-law started calling fairly early in the day too. Yeah, so his first call, he says, is around 10 a.m. Around... 9 a.m. The next door neighbor, Mrs. Corbel, is cleaning her living room, including washing her windows. Now, I took a little Google drive around the area, and the layout of the houses is quite interesting on this street that they live on. Across the road are trees, and beyond that is a river. And so there's no across-the-road neighbors at all. Okay. And the neighboring houses despite being relatively close to one another, are each set up on kind of their own like little hills. They're ranch style with the garages underneath and the driveways are cut into these hills. So the driveway is below grade. So the sight lines are obscured. Okay. We'll be back in a moment. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3am the comedy horror podcast not for the faint or fragile of heart let's go so when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport then they create dysfunctional delusional reality that's how a scam begins convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist the Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. Okay, so nobody can see into this house. So the neighbor can see Nahida's house, but she can't see kind of very well garage level or the driveway. 
So even if you're looking out your window, you can't really get a great look at those areas of your neighbor's house. So if somebody drove in and pulled her out of the house, it's very likely that the neighbors wouldn't be able to see this happening. Possibly. Now, see, Mrs. Corbel, she's cleaning her windows. And at first she says she thinks she saw a car in Nahida's driveway, but after more questioning becomes certain of it. She says it's mid-size to large, a late model car. It might be tan or brown. And she just knows that it's pulled up close to Nahida's garage door. And she sees it between like 9 and 10 a.m. So you can tell she just knows that there is a car there, but like accurately describing it, she can't basically because it's really hard to see from her viewpoint. Right. And who really takes note of cars coming in and out of their neighbor's driveway? Like in detail. Oh, okay. <laughs> One person. One person. <laughs> yeah. So this is between 9 and 10 a.m. And if you remember her brother-in-law, he's calling around 10 and gets no answer. Right. So this whole timeline works out that that vehicle was somehow involved. Right. So that's the, the angle that police start working. Police start to interview the neighbors. They talk to Mrs. Corbel, who mentions the car, as well as the, I think their name is pronounced, if we go with the American pronunciation of it, Janky. They live on the other side of Nahida's house. They said that they haven't seen Nahida or her husband that day, nor have they seen another car, but they asked Mr. Janky to keep an eye on the place. He's keeping an eye on the place, but that she's already like disappeared at this point. Yes. Okay. So police are like, hey, just keep an eye open, see if you see anything, etc. Now, as the night progresses, Eddie is sent home with Amal and Sharif, Nahida's sister and brother-in-law. But the next day, his dad arrives at around 10 a.m. to pick him up. He says that it's Eddie's birthday and that he needs to get him so that he can throw a party for Eddie. He says that he's bought supplies and asked some of the neighborhood boys to come over. The one thing he needs, though, is the key to the house. And Amal and Sharif put him off and they say they don't have it. The police do. And this really pisses him off. But he leaves. He takes Eddie with him. And it was actually his birthday? Yeah. Oh, not a good birthday. No. Now, this seems pretty bizarre to me to be throwing a birthday party Right after the child's mother goes missing? Yes. Yeah, it's extremely bizarre. And why would he need the keys of the house so he can arrange the son's birthday party? Like, Right, so like you're going to go have it at the place that your wife just went missing from? Right, none of it makes any sense. Right, but people do literally start showing up for a party. Oh. Because they don't know that she's missing. Oh. And so the next door neighbor who's been asked to keep an eye on things is like, what the heck is going on? So Mr. Janky, he goes over and he sends them away. Good for Mr. Janky. Right. But still, Eddie and his aunt arrive around 1.10 in the afternoon for the birthday party. So not even Eddie and his father. It's like Eddie and his paternal aunt. Okay. And does does the husband's family know that, that Nahid's missing at this point? Some do and some do not. Okay. He's acting really weird. It's not until 9 p.m. that night that police are able to make contact with the husband again. But it's less about Nahida and more about him wanting to get access to the home. He refuses to tell them where he is in this moment, and he says that he wants police to meet him at the home the next day so he can get Eddie's things. And he ends up telling them, I'm not running from the law, I'm not running from anything. But what does he need to get in there for? Is there like some evidence of something he's done in there? I don't know. I mean, he says it's just about getting Eddie's clothing, but he really seems to want to get back into the house. The police are kind of scrambling here, and you can see this as the police file develops. You can see them going back and interviewing witnesses again and again, hoping to get more information. They eventually do something a bit bold, which is they go to Eddie's school. Now, mind you, he's just... He would have just turned 11, I believe. And they question him there. And he says he knows that his parents are getting divorced and basically says that if his mom isn't at her friend's houses, that he believes that she's been kidnapped. Okay. What makes the child think this? Is he, is he feeling suspicious of his dad at this point too? I don't know if he's feeling suspicious of his dad or what's going on, but it's very clear that he is at least aware that there is a situation. Police go back to the house and they find that the back door lock is engaged, 
but the back door wasn't fully closed. And they make like kind of a big deal about this, but I'm not sure if that wasn't part of the initial investigation. Like someone that night that they were there looking it over, like forgot to like pull it shut all the way. But they go and they talk to Sharif again. He gives a few more clues. The overhead garage door wasn't locked when it would have been her habit to do so. Okay. And that the baby stroller was placed on the side of the garage instead of near the door that would have been used as an entrance from the garage. So like somebody could have just hastily put it somewhere. Right. I have a lot of theories and ideas about this. Like if it does feel like it was moved as she was exited from the house, but that's me making some assumptions here. So it feels like we're heading very strongly in one direction and we haven't gotten to the like part that like gave me pause and makes me a bit nervous about telling this story. During this conversation with the police, Sharif gives them a name and I'm not actually going to use this man's name here. Frankly, I get the impression that most of the immigrant community who had contact with this man were scared of him. And okay, so this is where the scary part comes in. We're not going to mention the name. Yeah. And if either of us go missing, you guys will all know who's responsible. Right. Take note. Take note. So I'm going to call him Z. I hope that has nothing to do. I hope there is no Zs in his name. No. Okay. No. Other that rules out. Someone's like, what names have somewhere someone's going to like. <gasps> Don't. Don't. Don't try to decode it. No. Okay. In some places, people say that he's a cousin of the husband, but I get a sense it's not like a really formal relationship. Like they're not actual cousins. Okay. But they are both from Jordan. Sharif insinuates that this man might know something. So please go and question Z. And he says that he was doing the same thing that he always done. And that remains true for the day she disappeared too. He says he's staying with his brother and sister-in-law and that he slept in from going out the night before. Once he woke up, he went to some businesses. Then he went out for the night. But the police, they even check with Z's sister-in-law who is surprised to hear that Nahida is missing but she confirms C's story about where he was that day. Okay. So he's scary, but right now he has an alibi? Sort of. Sort of. Okay. Police are a bit suspicious about this. I get the sense that this guy is known around town. So they actually talk to some of Z's sister-in-law's friends to confirm the sister-in-law's story. And they learn that she very much knew that Nahida was missing. And so when she acted surprised by the police, that was not real. The friends say that they had spoken with her about it a day or two after Nahida went missing. Okay, so what else is she saying then that's not true? Right. And is she is she making things up because she's afraid? It's possible. Now, Z very much does not like that police are up in his business. He knows that Sharif was the one to talk and so he finds Sharif and he threatens to kill him. Of course he does. Yes. So that's what Sharif says went down. Oh good. Lord. Now when police question Z about this, he says that's not what happened at all. Well of course he'd say that. Right. Of course he'd make the, the threat and then of course he'd deny that. That's what bad guys do. Right. Yeah, I mean whether or not he is involved specifically in this disappearance it's it's very clear people were scared of him. Now, not long after Sharif reveals his name and there's this interaction, Nahida's husband actually calls police and he tells them to come and talk to him because he has a man whose name is Khalil who knows Sharif and that Sharif has illegal guns in his house. He's trying to make a little diversion. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is very much a warning to Sharif because the police actually do go and search Sharif and Amal's home looking for illegal guns. So, I mean, I think this is like, personally, I think this is like a message that's being sent. So did he have the guns? So, you know, Sharif is very like upfront about what guns are in his house. They do find a gun that is not mentioned and... Amal was like, oh, like I didn't tell him about it because someone gave me that gun for protection because Sharif is going to be traveling soon. 
and I forgot to like tell him about it. But there's not like a big stash of illegal. Okay, so he's not like getting him in actual trouble. It's more of a warning. It feels like that, yes. So the police are clearly trying to head in this direction and trying to figure out what does Z have to do with this situation. Finally, they do get some information from a man. He says on the day Nahida went missing, two men arrived and asked where the Khatib residence is. They also expressed that they wanted to speak with Z and they wanted his contact information. This man, this source information, he says he didn't reveal either piece of information to the two men. So basically they have an informant who says, hey, these two strange men showed up and asked me on the day she went missing where she lived. Okay. And they also wanted to get like in touch with... But they just came out of nowhere? Yeah, they literally pulled up in a car. Okay. And asked this. So how are they connected? So he is trying to tell them kind of in the way that I'm trying to tell you without like mentioning names. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's trying to reveal this information to them and they're like probably wondering the same thing. Like what, what does it have, this to all do? have to do? Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, okay, look, I have this source, but I cannot say his name. Oh my gosh. Right. Okay. While they're in conversation, this other anonymous source, he shows up and is like, okay, I will tell you what I know. Layers of anonymous sources. So many anonymous sources. Which you can tell, like, there's a lot of fear here. This man, this second man who has arrived on the scene and whose name I'm protecting, actually is fully anonymous in the police details. So the report does not include his name. He says that he will only speak to police if he can remain anonymous. And there's good reason for that. This man says that he was a double agent in Jordan and that he knows Z and these two men from there. He says that the two men, he knows one of them personally. He thinks that the two must be brothers. And he says that Z mm -hmm. and these two men are part of what is known as the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And what is that? So to be clear, I am not an expert on Israeli and Palestinian history. I've been listening and learning a lot over the last few weeks, which I think a lot of us have. So I want to take care in what I'm about to say about this. Basically, the Popular Front movement is considered by the U.S. to be a terrorist organization. This is in part because the U.S. government supports the Israeli government and because around the time Nahida went missing, the Popular Front in the 1960s and 70s were heavily involved in skyjacking planes. They would basically take control of commercial airlines and hijack them. Okay, so they are, are they like a militia organization separate from the government? Basically, the Palestinians have for a very long time been wanting liberation from Israel, right? And recognition and a separate Palestinian state. And so what we're hearing currently is about Hamas, mm -hmm. um, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, there was a completely different organization that might still exist. Okay, but they're along that lines. They're not like an actual like... No, so they're, they're fighting for the liberation of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And what they wanted to do was these really very public and visible things. And so hijacking commercial airlines and they would sometimes fly them to like Jordan just to call attention to like what was happening to Palestinians. Now, for the most part, a lot of those skyjackings, they were not necessarily trying to like execute or kill any passengers. Did some people die in the process of this? Absolutely. Right. So like, you know, it's like this like fraught space. So what this man is saying is that he's a double agent working in Jordan, which I get the sense that this means that he is anti-Palestinian liberation. And a lot of Palestinians have historically fled to Jordan. So there's a huge population of Palestinians who are living in Jordan. So what he's saying is that Z and these two men are part of this organization and that he knows them from there. He says specifically that 
to his knowledge, these men were trained in kidnappings. He says that this training involved the ability to kidnap someone in a way that looks like no one was there at all. So they specialize in kidnapping, according to him. According to him. And what does he have to do with this? Just because he's part of the same organization? So he has knowledge of these men and he's been kind of working. Z. Yes. The husband's connection to these men. So, so he's like okay. a bridge. A bridge between the husband and these professional kidnappers. He's also saying that Z is part of this too. Okay. So Z and... So he's part of it, but he's not like specializing in kidnapping like these two men. No, he is. Oh, he is too. Yes. So there's a whole team of kidnappers. That's what he's putting out there. That's terrifying. Right. So he says specifically Z and these two men were trained in kidnapping when they were in Jordan. He says that, again, that these kidnappings would look like no one was there and there wouldn't be any signs of a struggle. How do you prevent signs of a struggle? Well, Nahida's house looks pretty normal. Right. Like she had just stepped out. Right. Right. He also says that the person that they kidnap is taken to a second location and killed within 24 hours. He says that they were taught to burn bodies or place them in sewers rather than bury them or place them in water. Now, it's important to note that I really do not have like in-depth knowledge of this movement's history or whether or not to believe that this is what happened, but this anonymous source, that's the information he's putting out there about these men. This is a scary story. Right. So at this point, do we believe Nahid is dead? I think that's what this anonymous source is heavily hinting at. And nobody's ever found her? No. Like to this day? Right. She's still missing. Okay. Now, Nahida's husband actually has an alibi for the night before and the entirety of the day that she goes missing. He's very publicly seen. He says that he goes to Fitness World with his brother and their friend Chuck on Thursday night after work. He goes to Chuck's apartment where he is sleeping on the couch and says that he watched television before falling asleep. He then goes to work in the morning and then to his mother's house to talk to her about her naturalization paperwork. He says that takes all of the morning to talk to her about that. He then goes to a restaurant where he makes a point to talk to a waitress whose name he is able to give to police and then back to work where he meets up with his mother again. And then he goes out shopping with his mother while his brother and Chuck went to Fitness World. So his brother and Chuck are at Fitness World and you remember when police start questioning him, the husband walks in, mm -hmm. that's because he was out shopping in the area with his mother. So he's basically doing anything that like somebody in a movie who's just hired a hit person would do. Seems very cliche. Like, like yeah, yes. it is. Yeah. Like, like I don't know. Be... Like, you know, I go out to eat all the time and like I'm not always necessarily certain of like my waiter or waitress's name. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, he's constantly with someone throughout the entirety of this time. Right. Right. So it's not like a typical day where you'd just be going around and and doing your thing. He he knows each step and all these people that he was with. Yes. So the police file that we got only covers one month of the investigation. The last interview that is in there that I have access to is an interview that they did with Nahina's mother-in-law, the husband's mom. This interview takes place at the end of October and it's done at the home where Nahida had been living, which is now occupied by Nahida's son, her husband, and the mother-in-law who is there to take care of Eddie. They are following up to confirm the husband's story about helping her with her naturalization paperwork. Now, like the mom does confirm this. They bring a translator to help communicate with her and she does confirm that she was being helped by her son that day, but it, the police note that it takes some prompting by the son to get her to remember why he was there. Okay, so either she doesn't have a memory or 
of it. Like it didn't happen or it could have happened and she could have just forgotten. Yeah. I mean, like memory is pretty faulty. Right. Especially like sometimes things can blend together. Like you wouldn't know exactly what day you had that conversation unless you were taking note of that for some reason. Right. So this is, you know, they interview her at the end of the month after, you know, quite a few things have happened in her life. But also like if, if he did have like these other people involved, it doesn't really matter where he was because he wasn't the one directly doing the, the kidnapping. Yeah. I mean, but they have to like really confirm like is, is his story true? Are mm -hmm. we, are we listening to him? So did he successfully prompt his mom through this? Yes. So they're like, okay. But during the conversation, she also says that that night that the police came and questioned her her two sons so this is at fitness world she'd been out shopping she said that she did notice police talking to her son that night but she said that no one told her that it was about nahita or that nahita was missing it wasn't until she saw nahita's face on the news that she knew something was wrong but because she doesn't speak english she had to go and ask one of her other sons why is my daughter-in-law's face on the news oh wow what a way to find out yeah. Now this is where Nahida's husband jumps in and he says, no one told his mom this because Nahida leaving her husband like that would have brought shame on their family and particularly it reflects poorly on him. So he says that's why no one told her. And this is where it really feels like we were on to some healthy leads here. But I also get the impression that people were really scared and didn't want to reveal if they knew more. And it also feels like the police were frustrated as well. In later interviews, many of them said they suspected the husband the entire time and still do. Right. It's one of those things where you don't want to say you know because you don't know for sure, but it really feels like it would be him. Like it, nothing else makes sense in this particular case. Right, that there's some involvement here. Now, it also looks like they just were never able to piece together everything because people weren't coming forward. Nahida's husband is finally granted a divorce in 1977, so one year after her disappearance, which briefly gets her story back in the news. Her story reappears in the news when she is declared dead eight years later in 1984. And you can see during the whole time, police are always hopeful that like something will happen that they'll get a clue that this will resolve in some way. So in 2008, a fisherman finds a skull in the Mononymy River. This is the river that ran close to Nahida's house, like across the, the one in the view. Yes. And they also find a skull in a backyard in 2018. Why so many skulls? Yeah, I don't know. Like, this is very alarming. Oh. But neither are her. Wow. So I was not expecting them to find her at all because we, we did discuss that we have not found her. Right. Um, and also those kidnappers seem pretty good at like getting rid of things. Mm -hmm. But why the two skulls? You know, I think we've, we've talked about this a little bit. I think that there are... Uh, You're going to say it, right? They're everywhere? Yeah. It's like how a spider is always within six feet of us. Yes. Is it the same with skulls? It feels like it may be. We live in a horrible world. Right. Right. And, you know, each of these times they bring up Nahida's name, they go and talk to the investigators, and it's clear, like, they're just, like, so hopeful for some resolution in her story. Neither worked out. Are you looking for spiders right Actually, now? there was one dangling from a web right over my chair when we started, and then when you just looked up above my head for a second, and I just mentioned that, I, I started to get paranoid that maybe there was one. Okay. Sorry. The husband ends up owning a food store in Milwaukee, and in 1982, he's charged with food stamp fraud. That's what they get him on? Yeah. After all this? Right. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I know it was like, it was quite a substantial amount, but, you know, that right. ends up being what he, they get him for, um, along with a whole group of people. And... He ends up passing away in the 2000s with no resolution to her case at all. And I think the frustrating thing here is, because I'm going to join investigators in this, is that we know so much about mm -hmm. this story, or at least now I do, mm -hmm. after reading this file and sharing this with you. If we went just by what's online, it doesn't include any of the details about the kidnapper angle. But there's just never a resolution and I can tell like so many people were scared at the time to share what they knew or thought 
they knew. And it's just a lot of time has passed and those investigators are still thinking of her. And I know a lot of people were scared about this story. I understand completely. I'm only on the fringes of the story and it makes me nervous to talk about. But a lot of time has passed and maybe it's time to like step forward and say what you know. Now we are going to listen to Amy's poem, In the Midst of a Divorce, read by Kathy Najimy. Kathy is an award-winning actress and activist who has appeared in over 25 films, including Hocus Pocus, Sister Act, and The Descendants. Her TV credits include shows like Desperate Housewives, Drop Dead Diva, Veep, and Veronica's Closet, and she has also lent her voice to many animated TV shows and movies, including Wally, Tinkerbell, and as Peggy Hill in 14 seasons of King of the Hill. Nahida Ahmed Khatib, 30, missing since October 1st, 1976, from Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Fishermen find a skull in the Menomani River one April afternoon, 30 years after you left your niece alone in your sister's house. Frozen meat slabbed to the counter, a half-empty coffee cup ringing the hard surface. There are men who carry you all of these years, the dark wings of your hair, the scars marking your body, a single portrait of you smiling, tucked into their shirt pockets. That skull, not yours, but that husband once was the one who says you left in the first place. For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.